I want to just start this morning by uh, recognizing uh, the passing into the presence of the Lord, our very dear friend, Brother Charles Simpson. Uh, last Wednesday, February 14th, uh, he left his family and entered into God's presence. And I know that he is rejoicing uh, with Brother John right now and many others. Uh, but he leaves a big hole in our, our lives. Uh, I was thinking for more than 50 years, he's been a major influence in my life, in my family's life. Um, I moved 1,100 miles away from where I was living in New Mexico with my parents at 17 to Mobile, Alabama to be a part of the church that he pastored. And he met with me on numerous occasions as I was feeling called into ministry. And prayed with me and gave me great counsel. And he asked me later uh, to be the first youth pastor for his church and leader of worship in their church. And then he did our wedding and he oversaw my ordination and he prophesied over us at our wedding and set a tone for how we would live our lives. And he released us when we came up here to Atlanta to be with Donna's dad, Brother John. And he, uh, he also restored me, along with many others, with gentleness and humility when my own journey of a prodigal experience had led me away. And Brother John, I mean, Brother John and Robert and my own father and Charles were so significant in that restoration. He's always had a heart for restoration. He's had a prophetic utterance and message that has been so clear. His very last ministry trip, he was with us last October. The last weekend of October, he was with us and spoke touching eternity and or touching the eternal and then with our leaders. And I feel so privileged that he was with us his very last trip. Uh, so we are blessed. I would like to ask you to pray for his family uh, and for all that his realm has touches. It's a, it's a big void for many of us. So would you just join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your servant. We thank you, God, for the eternal impact and deposit that he has placed into so many, namely many of us. We are grateful for his friendship with our own dear brother John. We thank you, God, that they both finished the course. They ran the race and now they are receiving the prize. And we pray, Lord, that the deposit that both of them left in us we will be faithful with it and we will carry on depositing into a new generation the eternal things that we have received from above. Bless his family and give comfort to each of them and to all those that he led and pastored. I pray, Father, for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage our very own Jane Allen Duke. Come on, welcome. Jane Allen is not preaching this morning, but she could. She's beautiful, but I'm going to ask you, you want to hold the microphone. Okay. I have asked Jane Allen to come and join me here because she has been learning how to drive. And I'm going to ask her about that experience. And she's going to share with us about her experience of learning how to drive, right? Mm -hmm. So Jane Allen, why don't you first start by just telling us what is your understanding of what's required to get a driver's license? 
Well, I don't have my license yet, but so hopefully this is right. But first, you have to get your permit. You have to be 15, and you have to do driver's ed, and uh. you have a certain like requirement of how many hours you have to do. So you have to do like I think it's six with like an, an instructor, and then like 40 other hours. Six of those have to be at night, and then you go and you take your test, and then you get your driver's license once you've had your permit for a year. Okay. All right. Now you have turned 16. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So do you anticipate getting your license soon? Well, I didn't get my permit until the summertime, so uh, I, since I have to have it for a year, I won't get my license till June. Okay. All right. It makes sense. All right. Are we all excited about Jane Allen getting her license? <laughs> yeah. 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 I heard. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us, Jane Allen, how is learning how to drive and actually driving different? Mm. Well, learning how to drive is... It's kind of, it makes it more simple because you're just learning how to like operate a car and you don't have to think about all the, the different rules of the road and what it's like when you're actually on the road with other people and that part is definitely a big adjustment because even if you know how to work a car and you know all the rules, like the pressure's on because there's other people that are also <laughs> driving. All right. So would you say it's more pressure and stress to drive the car than to learn how to drive the car? I think so. Okay. <laughs> I've seen some of you drive and I would agree with her. <laughs> now, uh, do you think that you'll know everything there is to know about driving once you have your license? Mm -mm. No, explain why. Well, I mean, if you have to drive pretty much your whole life, I don't think there's, you learn everything that you need to know in just that year of like having your permit and that's like what's qual, like what's the word? Um, <laughs> what's classified as like your um, time period of learning how to drive. All right, good. That's a good answer. Do you agree? Yeah. So the, here's the answer to the question we all want to know. Who have you enjoyed learning from more? <laughs> Dad or mom? Um, <laughs> well, I've driven, I think, more with my dad, but I have driven with both of my parents. And I... I don't know, I feel like I can't say that I have a, a preference of who I like to oh. learn with. Very safe answer. Very good, Jane Allen. We like it. Thank you. You're very smart. I like it. That's great. All right, so why do you think car insurance is more experience, expensive for a driver your age than a driver my age? Um, well, I think when you haven't been driving as long, then you're at a higher risk of like getting into an accident and stuff because you just have less experience on the road. Right, right. I agree with that. That's good. Though, again, I've seen some of you drive <laughs> and your rates need to go higher. <laughs> All right. Final question. Is it true that your dad drives too fast? Um, <laughs> well, no, okay. I wouldn't say so. What about your mom? Mm -mm. No, okay. <laughs> Let's hear it for Jane Allen, everyone. Good job. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Now, why am I asking Jane Allen about her learning how to drive? Well, because it's a good example of what it means to be a student learning from the master. A student learning from the master. Her master at this moment is her father. He's been teaching her how, and I've been learning or hearing about those journeys of teaching her how to drive a car. Every father that's taught or mother their child how to drive a car, you know what I'm talking about. 
to actually sit in the, in the passenger seat and let them take the wheel is one of the most incredible journeys of faith that you will ever experience. It is incredible. You know, the root word of disciple is student, uh, learner. Uh, a Christian disciple is a student of the master. And it's not just theoretical, it's practical. Uh, it's not just learning it up here, it's actually having to figure out how to do it with your hands and uh, with your feet and with your observation skills and your hearing and your sight and all that it takes to drive a car, even more so, to follow the master. We're not just learning things about Jesus. We're not just doing Bible trivia here this morning or having you pull out your Bibles for a sword drill, though those tools I did use in youth ministry at one point. We're actually putting into practice what we learn. Like Jane Allen is learning to drive and putting it into practice. Theologian Robert Duncan Culver writes, the disciple, or in the Greek, the mathetes, is a learner. But the mathetes, in a primary sense, is not the sort of learner who pays for a course down at the university, goes to the bookstore and buys a text and workbook, and then extends lectures so as to pass the examinations. Nor is he even so impersonal a learner as the one who joins a congregation and absorbs the folk ways and the doctrines of the group. He is, rather, one who undertakes the very personal relationship of apprentice to the master of a craft or of a profession. He is one whose declared intention is to become the craftsman or professional that his master now is. Culver also gives insight as to the master and what his role is in the training. He says, in this relation, Jesus was the didactic, didaskalos. Did I say that right, Curtis? Didaskalos, excuse me, didaskalos. Or teacher. But it was not teacher in a broad sense, but in the narrow one of master or the master of the craft, who both tells and shows his disciple. Every mathetes studies together with every other mathetes. They recite together. They share the same quarters and dining facilities, and they work together. The arrangement builds on a sort of elitist principle in that the learning process is not a democratic process. You don't get to vote. The master is authority. He's the source and he's the guide. He's not merely a leader. And think of it this way when Jesus said to his disciples, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Now, here's the reality that I think we find ourselves in the Western American church in the year 2024. Many of us, and when I say us, not us specifically, but churches at large, have reduced discipleship into something far less than what Jesus meant it to be. We've, uh, here's a made up word, programmatized it. We've made it into a program. We've turned it into a Bible study or a weekly coffee with someone wiser and older. 
or into sitting in a group of uncomfortable chairs, maybe in a circle, listening to someone go on and on and on about Jesus. We've made it into a program and we've shrunk being a disciple from something you are to something you do, like a skill we master and post on our LinkedIn post. In Jesus's day, a disciple didn't sit in a class or have coffee every week with their rabbi. They moved in with him, which might explain why I've had, and Donna and I have had, several people move in with us. Jamie was one of them. Matt Sarter was one of them. Christy Peterson was another one. You know, when they move in, you can't really hide very well who you are, not just in the public scene, but in the private as well. And if you were going to submit yourself to a rabbi, you didn't just meet him occasionally, you lived with him. Which offers real context to a story that we can see in John's gospel, John 1, 35. The next day, John, this is John the Baptist right here, was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples of John heard him say this, and they left John and followed Jesus. I would too. John's a great guy. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus turned and he saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, didaskalos, same word, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. You know, see what's happening here in this scene. By the way, if you go on and read the rest of the chapter and you see the interactions that he plays out with Peter and with Nathaniel and the others as he's heading towards Galilee where he's gonna meet James and John and others, it's fascinating to see how Jesus is drawing these guys unto himself. They first call him rabbi, which is an honor, teacher. But then they say, where are you staying? Why? Because they figure if Jesus allows it, they're gonna be staying there too. That's where they're gonna head. To be with Jesus means to be where he is. Come and see, Jesus said. He invited them to join him. From the very beginning, Jesus is just a different kind of teacher. He's different than what we've grown accustomed to as far as teachers and leaders in the church today. He's even different in that day that he's drawing these disciples unto himself. He, he walked with a tremendous amount of authority. People paid attention to what he said because there was weight and substance to him. There was power emanating from him, miracles occurring, words of wisdom and teaching like no one else could give. He was prophetic, speaking revelatory things into people's lives. He was hands-on. He was nuanced, riveting, relational. They didn't meet in a classroom. He didn't use a curriculum. He didn't stand behind a lectern. I'm not saying that those things are bad, but if those are the only things we have, then we 
have a problem. Dallas Willard wrote this. We have counted on preaching and teaching to form the life of the Christian, but this strategy has not turned out well. The result is that we have multitudes of Christians who can hardly get along with themselves, much less others. Jeff Vanderstelt puts it even more bluntly. If preaching and teaching alone was sufficient, he said, the crowds listening to Jesus would not have rejected him. There must be more than just listening to a good sermon or hearing a good teaching or doing a good Bible study. Jesus' disciples lived with him 24-7. They traveled with him. They, they sat with him around the fire at night. They ate with him their meals. They laughed and joked with him. I think, I want to believe that. I believe that they did. Learning as much from what he was saying, but also what he was doing. They saw him. With their eyes, they experienced him, all their senses. They could touch him, see him, hear him. They lived with him. They were his mathetes. They were students of the master, following him. And as they traveled all around the countryside, he did teach, sure. He did speak sermons of sorts, yes. But he also told stories. And stories that they could relate to, so familiar with their lives and their livelihood. Stories about merchants and farming and fishing. All things that they could relate to and see and understand and remember. They were with Jesus so that they could become like Jesus and therefore go and do what Jesus did. And that's what it means to be a disciple. We are with him that we might become like him, that we might do what he did. Ask yourself, am I that kind of disciple? Am I with him enough? Am I becoming like him enough? Am I doing what he did? In his book, The Radical Disciple, a hero in the faith of mine, John Stott, which was, this is his last book that he wrote. He was in his 80s when he wrote this one. He describes Christ-likeness as God's will for the disciple. That that is the ultimate purpose for each of us who are followers of Jesus, Christ-likeness. He said, we know that we're predestined for it because Romans 8, 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We were predestined to be like Jesus. But Christ-likeness is not just something we were predestined for. It is something that is ongoing in our lives. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. It's something we were predestined for. It's something that is ongoing. And it is something that is still yet to happen. Like when John says in 1 John 3, beloved, 
We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Stott writes about these things. He says, here then are three perspectives, past, present, and future, that are all pointing in the same direction. God's eternal purpose, predestined to be conformed to his image. God's historical purpose, being transformed by the spirit into his image and God's final eschatological purpose. When he appears, we will be like him. These all combine toward the same end of Christ likeness for Christ likeness is the purpose of God for the people of God to be like him. Now, listen, A lot of cultural Christians in our country today, around even the world, those that have grown up around Christianity or around the church, a lot of folks think that being a Christian has little to do with Christ-likeness, which is funny since Christ is in the word Christianity, but that doesn't seem to be on their radar. They're more interested in remaining just as they already are and just sprinkle a little bit of blessings from Jesus on top. John Tyson puts it like this. He says, it's people that take a consumer mentality to spirituality, just pick and choose what we want, kind of add a little bit of this. Don't take that, we don't like that part. You know, this is good, but that's not so good. I'm a consumer, I get what I want. I get to purchase my spirituality as I like. We take a little bit of consumer spirituality and then we add to that a lot of self-care because my life is really hard. And I I need to, if you don't take care of yourself, who will take care of you? You know, all of the self-care that we hear about just having a better, wholesome, healthy life. I'm not opposed to living in health and being wholesome, but a lot of people are so busy caring for themselves, they can't care for anyone else. So they take this consumer mentality of spirituality and they add to it a little bit of self-care or a lot of self-care. And then they sprinkle on top some Jeezy stuff. Jesus-y stuff, didn't say that right. Jesus-y stuff. And then what it ends up with is just a secular syncretism. Syncretism, it's it's an amalgamation of all these different thoughts and theories and ideas and meshing it together into kind of a Christianity that seems very easy and appealing, but it has very little to do with being like Jesus, with Christ-likeness. As John writes in one of his epistles, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. It's that simple. If you want to live, if you want to claim you're in him, you must live like him. And that means that a lot of people that say they're Christian are not really Christians. They're not really Christ followers. They're members, maybe, of a church. They're participants in some sort of spiritual engagement. They're Christian in name, but they're not doing what Jesus did. Jesus expected his disciples to not only learn from him, but to live as he did, to do what he did, to put it into action. 
He would send them out. We read about it in the gospels. He sent out the 12. He sent out 70 or 72, depending on your Bible. He sent these disciples out and he, he told them, I've, I've downloaded this stuff to you. I've, I've given you this information. You've seen the power of God at work in my life. You've, you've seen how people have been set free and, and healed and raised up. Now go, go take what you've learned and put it into practice. And they did, they went. And then they would return to him and kind of have a debrief and go through what they learned and realize they learned even more by doing what they had been taught how to do. Jane Allen will know more about driving by driving than by reading a book from the DMV. We will learn more by doing what Jesus has called us to do than by simply reading about it or attending church on Sundays. Someone should have said amen. Thank you. This is a pattern for Jesus. They went out after learning, after seeing the power of God. They saw it for themselves. They came back. They debriefed. And then he'd go deeper with them. And then he'd send them out again to put into practice what they learned. The process would continue for three, three and a half years. Until the last time when they were all together. And this time when Jesus sent them off, they didn't come back. They just kept going. Why? Because Jesus was ascending to his father and he was sending them out to make disciples of all the nations. And they were about to receive the necessary thing that would make all of it possible, the Holy Spirit. For when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they received power from on high. They were led into all wisdom and truth. They were empowered with the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And now these tepid, fearful fishermen who scattered when Jesus was crucified were now standing up boldly declaring the same gospel that Jesus had come to give to them. And most importantly, the Holy Spirit made all of that possible. A pastor, Mike Glenn, he remarks about this. He says, instead of measuring success by those who kept coming back, Jesus measured his success by the number of disciples he sent off. What if we modeled our discipleship processes after those of Jesus? What if at the beginning we told disciples, in three years, you'll be on your own and we fully expect you to duplicate this ministry wherever Jesus sends you. What if we celebrated pastors for the number of disciples they sent out into the communities rather than the size of congregation that gathered on Sunday morning? The metrics that we have held up may be wrong. If we're going to look and take seriously the commands of Jesus to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors, ourselves, and the great commission to go, making disciples as you go of all the people groups, of all the nations, of all those that you come in contact with, teaching them everything that I have taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always. Those are the two metrics by which I believe the American church and every other church that has been in existence since Jesus ascended are gonna be judged by. May we be the kind of people 
that takes seriously his commands. The world, if we did this, would be a different place. The church would be a different place. We would be different people. We'd be living as Jesus lived instead of merely being experts in Jesus' trivia. Be with him. Become like him. Do what he did. In my journey of following the Lord, now almost 53 years, save a few years where I was rebellious, I've been discipled by a lot of great leaders. My father-in-law, Brother John, Robert Grant, Brother Curtis, Brother Charles, leaders who all themselves were discipled, but who have over the last four decades have discipled me in various ways. Not unto themselves, they didn't make disciples for themselves, they're making disciples per the commission and commandment of Jesus, unto him. Leading like the Apostle Paul led, who said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And they, all four of them and many others, have shared their lives with me. They, they have spoke words into my life. They've corrected me when I was falling short. They've challenged me when I was growing slack. They've cheered me on that I might run the race that is before me. They taught me how to pray and how to hear God's voice. They taught me how to love my wife and how to raise our children. They taught me how to handle my money and how to be a cheerful giver. They taught me how to walk in the spirit and minister reconciliation. They taught me how to stir up the gift of God that was within me and how to make disciples of those God gives me influence. These leaders opened their lives to me. They invited me in. They invited me close, not far off, but up close. They said, come and see. And I can honestly say, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for them. God used them mightily in my life, the life of our marriage and our family, and I am so grateful. It reminds me of how the Apostle Paul loved and led and discipled a group of new believers in Thessalonica. And he wrote about it when he wrote to them later on. He said in 1 Thessalonians 2.5, you know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children, gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. And because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Down in verse 11, he says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, 
and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Do you see how Paul not only shared a teaching with them, he shared his very life with them. He invited them in that they could be changed. Because Paul wasn't all that, but Christ in him was. Because Paul wasn't the savior of the world, but the savior of the world resided in Paul and chooses to use any of us who were submitted unto him. Paul didn't use flattery. He wasn't trying to be greedy. He wasn't looking for praise or to assert authority. He was gentle like, like a child would be. And he cared for them like a nursing mother would care for her baby. And he loved them so much, he was delighted to share with them not only the gospel, which saved them, but also right attached to that, his own very life. He shared himself with them. And like a father, he encouraged and comforted them, urging them to live lives worthy of God. That's the kind of discipling I want to do. That's the kind of discipling we are called to, both to be a disciple of that kind of environment, those kinds of people, that kind of community, but also to offer that kind of discipling to those that we are called to lead, we are called to reach, we are called to share the good news with. I just want to leave you with two things this morning, and then I'm done. First, I hope that you will realize the critical importance of being a disciple yourself. It's not a Christian club that we've joined. It is a life of following him, of being with him, of becoming like him, Christ's likeness, and of doing the things that he did increasingly in our lives. It's critical that we ourselves walk as disciples, Jesus said to his early disciples, I quoted earlier, you have one teacher, but you are all disciples, brothers and sisters together. I'm encouraging you to become a student of the master, not just simply an observer or an attender or a pew sitter. I'm encouraging you to draw close to God and draw close to one or two or a couple that can help you in that journey. Paul did it for those in Thessalonica. We see it throughout scripture where other leaders helped and pastored and cared and discipled and mentored and coached and brought them into full maturity because of the grace of God in that relationship. I'm encouraging you to not just sit or attend church, but to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus as a disciple where you invite someone into your life and walk in a close relationship with them. As Brother Curtis admonished us 10 years ago now, find a pastor. Find a pastor. I'm not talking about me. I'm not talking about him. We got a lot of people to pastor already. There are a lot of people here that God may be drawing you close to, 
leaders, ones that are more mature than you are, ones that you see the life of the Spirit in, ones that have things that are going on in their life and you see they're following after Jesus and you think, you know, I think I could imitate them a little bit while they follow Jesus. Find someone. It's not a program. It's not an assignment. We certainly are not going to make those kinds of assignments in our church. But if you would find someone to submit yourself to in this kind of way, the Lord might use that to develop you in ways you never would see. I realize some of you are older and mature, and it's a different kind of relationship, and that's certainly understandable. But I especially speak to those that are young in the faith, that have stuck somewhere, that are not going where they need to be. Maybe God would use someone or a couple a group of leaders that could help and walk with you, not to control, not to lord it over you, but rather to challenge you and grow you and pray for you and admonish you and celebrate with you when you have victory in Jesus. We were built on this kind of thing. Brother Charles and Brother John laid down their lives for this kind of thing. I'm encouraging you to find someone, especially if you're young in the faith, who will walk with you, disciple you, know you, pray for you, challenge you, rejoice with you. The second thing, I hope that we will take seriously the command of Jesus to go and make disciples, to invite people into our lives. And this can take all sorts of facets. Many of you are sitting here with little small people in your house already. You've invited them in. You didn't have much of a choice. The doctor said, here's your child. And they wouldn't let you go home without taking them with you. You've invited them into your life. Good. Start seeing them not just as your children, but as disciples that you have a responsibility to raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Maybe God has given you greater capacity to invite someone else into your life, maybe even into your home if the Lord so speaks. Certainly inviting them in to see you as you really are, not just as you present yourself to be when it's looking good. Invite, make disciples. We watch people walk out and do different things in schools these weeks and in in different neighborhoods and and in different businesses and in different uh, teaching environments. I want to encourage you to consider how has God called me to make disciples? Maybe it's to work with someone else. Maybe it's to be involved in a small group where you're working as a team and helping that happen. Maybe it's partnering. Maybe it's not resting completely on you, but certainly you don't get away without taking his command seriously. May we take it seriously, not programatize it, Not reduce it down to something that's just trivial and trite, but rather it's something that is life-changing, can set somebody on the course to the kingdom. I pray that we would be the kind of people that are with Jesus, that are becoming like Jesus, and that do the things Jesus did. Amen. My wife is going to come and we're going to pray for you. I have her microphone. And then we'll have a time of ministry as the Lord leads.
was taking notes so furiously, I don't really, I'm not prepared. Thank you. We're having a moment. Excuse us. Um, yes. Uh, encouraging, convicting, all the things. And I was having a minute myself with the Lord and forgot that it was my turn. So <laughs> sorry about that. Um, in light of what he is inviting us into, Dallas Willard explains this being a, a constant or continuous servant of the master like this. He says, in his presence, our inner life will be transformed and we will become the kind of people who naturally and supernaturally do what Jesus did, mm -hmm. why he did it, that all the things would connect that Chris was talking about. I do want to share this. I was reading this week something by Philip Keller, and he said, we are identified and known by the sort of fruit, the quantity of fruit, and the quality of fruit born out in our daily conversation, conduct, and character. Wow. There is no greater criterion for Christians. It is the gauge of God's people. That is not possible if we cannot become better, more consistent students of the master. Mm -hmm. I can tell you this week, I've had some pretty yucky fruit, both in sort, quantity, and quality. I have not, I've not been a winner this week in several key relationships at work. Um, I've had to apologize a lot. I've had to pray for God to undo any damage that my tongue created for them. And to say that I was disappointed that that's what came out of my heart is putting it mildly. But the solution for that is not for me to work harder, to be nicer, to practice being a loving person. Yeah. The solution for that is for me to come up close to Jesus and stay close so that I become like him. Yes. So that naturally and supernaturally, what flows out of my life is truly the gauge of his character, yeah. not mine. That's right. So I'm going to pray for you and me today yes. um, that we take his invitation, that we don't leave here and try to do better, do more, achieve, serve but that we leave here and we know that our first and primary job is to be with him, to love him, to be known by him, to learn of him. And it will flow out in our lives. Yes, it will. Would you pray with us? Father, thank you for your mercy, for your goodness that invites us to come and live with you right where we are, that you would invade our hearts and make us over in your image today, in this moment, that we would grow in our capacity to learn of you, that we would come with our 
burdens and our concerns and our failures, yes, God. our sin, and that we would discover who you really are, your goodness, yes. Yes. your righteousness, yes, Jesus. your worthiness, and that as we abide in the vine, we would see the sort of fruit, the quantity of fruit, the quality of the fruit of our lives becoming more like you. That we would draw on the same source that you drew on, our Father. That we would benefit from the indwelling Holy Spirit to be students of the Master. Make this our reality, God. Bring us back to it again and again. Because only as we are students can we learn to encourage others in their student life. Yes, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you've invited us in to be with you. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. Life forevermore. It's in your presence where we find transformation beginning to happen. We know we've been predestined for that, that we would, that we would be Christ-like, that we would be changed into your image, that we would be like you, that we claim not only to be yours, but we do what you do. But Lord, we pray that as we are in your presence, you will change us, God, more fully into who you are, that we might do the things you did. The world needs that. They need that more than anything else. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us as a church community to take seriously your words, to be a disciple and to make disciples, to be about the Father's business, what he's called us to, with our children, with those that we might lead to the Lord those that might come across our path that want to draw from us and be strengthened by having fellowship with us. Lord, may we invite them in and, and offer not only the gospel, but offer our, our lives, our whole selves. And I pray, God, that that would multiply in countless ways in our workplaces and neighborhoods, with our family and friends, with the schools around this area, the businesses around this area. In everything that we do, we would be your disciple, going, making disciples. That we would be students of the master. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.